Leonard Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. In a new book titled Music Plus Revolution, Greenwich Village in the 1960s, Richard Barone describes how that neighborhood in New York became the epicenter of revolutionary developments in American music and culture. As many WBAI listeners know, Mr. Barone is a recording artist, performer, producer, professor, and radio host, and he joins me now to discuss the collision of music and message that created the protest song movement. His book is published by Roman and Littlefield, and it brings Richard Barone to our show now. Welcome. Great. I'm in my classroom at the new school right now. Ah, you're teaching the course named Music yes. Plus Revolution. Yes, I am. I teach improvisation also. So I'm in that improvisation room right now so we can improvise as much as you like. <laughs> <laughs> you begin your book with a brief history of the Greenwich Village area beginning in the mid-1600s. How did its development differ from other New York City neighborhoods? Well, you know, I think that the village has always had a mind of its own as far as what it wanted to be. I mean, even when the uh, when the well, uh, even earlier, but when the grid was established and the rest of Manhattan went on a very strict, uh, you know, uh, rigid uh, grid, the village residents refused to be part of that. Um, that's symbolic. And that's why I think. it's a confusing place to walk oh, around. Oh yes, but I think they like. I think we like it that way. I've been mm-hmm. a villager since 1984, and I think I kind of like that the, we, the the roads are a little bit, uh, the the paths are a little bit uh, unpredictable, you know. And I think that's what that's what makes it. Uh, it's one of the things that makes it unique, and certainly it's a, sim- a symbolic thing, I think, you know. But even racially, it was home yeah. of the Lenape for many centuries, but weren't free Dutch slaves among the first groups to move into the area? Yeah, the very first, I think, the, you know, there was a, it was certainly the first a free black uh, settlement in the United States was, was in Greenwich Village, right around uh, Washington Square Park in the Mineta, Mineta Lane. There were, it was called the Minettas. Mm-hmm. Later, uh, uh, but you know the Manetta Lane, uh, and that area was was the first black, free black slave settlement. Its name comes from a Dutch word for green district. I'm I'm not sure I pr- would pronounce it. Right yes, Grein, I can't. Pr- I can't pr- <laughs> My students ask me to pronounce it all the time. I can I can't really pronounce it either. But I will say that the the name as Greenwich Village is a little redundant because it means green like green district district or green mm-hmm. village village. You know, it really uh, it already said it within that Dutch word that it was green the green district or the green village. But uh, yeah, yeah, it comes from that. In the 20th century, Greenwich Village has been home to many historic situations. It became something of the bohemian capital of the United States. And um, people on the left were moving there in the early 20th century. Why there in particular? Interesting. You know, it it seems like just a lot of it was... um a com- well, a combination of, of factors just sort of uh, happened, like with the uh, the artist community. Uh, you know, Samuel Morse, who had invented the Morse code, was one of the first professors of art and sculpture at NYU in the 1800s, and had a, a studio on the Washington Square East, and it became a popular, uh, you know, uh, place for artists to study, and he had space for himself for his work and also for his students. And that kind of brought a lot of artists into the area uh, in the 1800s. And eventually on 10th Street was a large uh, studio, a large studio building. 
and I wanted to give you the exact date, so I'm looking on the timeline. The timeline was really something that I had to, that was once a chapter in the book, mm -hmm. but I decided it was just so much material to read that the timeline format made it, uh, at a glance, you could sort of see what, what happened when. Um, but it was a step-by-step -step process. I mean, artists came because first of, Stan I think, Samuel Morris's classes, and then the artist building on 10th, on 10th Street. Um, but also, you're right, the left-wing the left -wing politics uh, uh, took root here uh, with, the, with the magazine The Masses that was based in the village. A lot of things just all came together at the same time at the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s. And it also attracted musicians, which is <laughs> what your yes. book is about. <laughs> yes. You know, it was like, it seemed like what we just talked about laid the groundwork for uh, left-leaning musicians to to uh, gravitate to the village. Uh, and that was also a, a process that took some time. I mean, you know, Lead Belly, the great Lead Belly, it, who then was a, uh, such a personality with, his, with the radio show and as a touring artist, uh, he lived on 10th Street, West 10th Street also, East 10th Street, actually. And, you know, Pete Seeger and, and Woody Guthrie, Woody Guthrie was on Charles Street, uh, Pete Seeger on West 10th Street. I mean, this whole neighborhood just was flourishing with musicians by the end of the 19, even the, the uh, early 40s and the end of the 30s. Even. But that that would also suggest that it was an integrated neighborhood even then, because yes, uh, yes. Hughie Ledbetter, Ledbelly, yeah. was, uh, was an African-American. Absolutely. It was a wonderful mix. You know, there were also this neighborhood where I'm sitting right now on, on uh, 13th Street, but, you know, a few blocks down, were, were, you know, a lot of the what they call black and tan bars were, were mm -hmm. venues were, were that were integrated early on. Uh, these were just, you know, like taverns, but they were integrated taverns. And then when Cafe Society opened in, in the late 30s, 1939 or so, um, 38, 39, when that opened, that was the first fully integrated nightclub for music, you know, and Billie Holiday performed there. And and made one of the, the made the first uh, integrated recording, didn't she? Yes, she did with the Benny. I believe with Benny Goodman. I think that was for Columbia Records, and that was also their studios were also in the village. Good. And I think Columbia that, Records um, began in in the village. Was that one of the first recording studios yeah, in America? It, it wasn't the it wasn't the, the the business offices, but yes, the studio was near a I believe a West Eleventh Street or East Eleventh Street near where Webster Hall is. Very mm. near there, a couple of, maybe a block from Webster Hall. Uh, was a recording studio, and that's where, <clears throat> excuse me, where Benny Goodman and Billie Holiday collaborated. So it, it's been uh, it's been on the cutting edge of many things. It's also been called the cradle of the modern LGBT movement. Well, yes, and you know that really goes back <clears throat> decades, also before Stonewall, because even Walt Whitman, you know, was hanging out at. at um, uh, Fafs is it is pronounced P P F A F F Tavern. Mm -hmm. That was already very LGBT plus uh, Q plus uh, friendly uh, in the 1800s. Uh, so there's a long history, and the oldest one of the oldest bars in the city is Julius's on on um, Waverly Place, uh, 10 maybe 101 Waverly at uh, right near Christopher or on Christopher, and that is getting a finally getting a, a landmark status. Uh, this year, but it was 
that has been there for for decades before too. So Stonewall was a culmination of a lot of a lot of things, I think. Uh, Stonewall being uh, a, Stonewall a turning riots. point in in uh, in uh, sexual relations in this country. In effect. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we're already heading there. The, there was, you know, there was a new awakening toward uh, identity, sexual identity during the, especially during the 60s. That's where it was unstoppable. I think in the decades before, we were getting there. And then in the 60s, the the the, really, the music, I believe, the music scene and the openness in people's lyrics and songwriting also opened all kinds of like possibilities and open minds to, uh, uh, by possibilities, I mean uh, openness. And uh, I think that it's all very connected with the music that was being made, too. So you yeah. seem to be suggesting that everything that was happening in uh, the years before led up to something that was special yes. that began in the 1960s. Uh, and again, I'm not a, I'm not an expert or, you know, but I You were born in 1960, so <laughs> all of yes. this is is uh, kind of is is history in the way yes. that that 1492 is history to me. <laughs> well, you know, I have always loved Greenwich Village. I grew up in Florida, but I learned about it through books that my parents had. But then when I met Tiny Tim, believe it or not, the artist Tiny Tim, uh, when I was a teenager, he started teaching me about Greenwich Village. And uh, about Why? The, even about the, the, well, because I met him and I was very intrigued by him. And I told him I was a record producer, which I was not yet. Mm-hmm. But I told him, I'm a record producer. I'd like to do make some recordings with you. And he said, okay, let's do it. So we started recording. And we went to recording studios and we recorded some in hotel rooms and started making an album of recordings. But while he did songs, and they were from all different eras, but mostly from the 1930s or so, he would tell me stories about performing in Greenwich Village in the early 60s. Uh, and he and Mr. Dillon would rec- would perform at the Cafe Wa in the afternoons and raid the icebox for sandwiches. And, you know, he told me so many colorful stories of the era and... Um, and did it with such love for the for the location, telling me things like that Mr. Sebastian and and Mr. Yarrow walked the streets as if they were gods on Mount Olympus, you know. And I, I was so intrigued and fell in love with Greenwich Village just from his stories. Well, what led to its becoming home to much of the folk music revival of the 1950s? Um, more than than San Francisco or Chicago or other American cities? I believe more so. I believe more con- in a more concentrated way. Maybe maybe part of it is the concentration of venues that were in the village. Uh, there was a, a lot of places that uh, that hosted folk music. There were places that were not folk venues, like the Gaslight, which mm. people think of as a music venue, but it was really a poetry venue. But it would have folk music in between the poetry readings. Uh, and the Village Vanguard, which is known as a jazz club, really was a folk club. So there was a place for them to play. When Lead Belly moved to uh, the village, he kind of brought this kind of spirit of folk music with him. That was the 30s. You know, by the time that Pete Seeger was getting old, he was only 18. Pete Seeger was 18 when he met Lead Belly, I believe, 18 or 19 at the most, at the absolute uh, oldest. Uh, but eventually then Pete Seeger moved to the village, of course. Uh, he lived with his wife Toshi when they got married on McDougal Street, right in the middle of the, all this action. Well, you mentioned uh, the Village Vanguard uh, d- having a number of different things. 
Lenny Bruce used to perform there as yes. well. So there was never a feeling that these clubs were only reserved for one thing. Right, which there was, is great. There was more like a sense of a shared culture, wouldn't you and say? Yes, and isn't that amazing? Isn't that fantastic how it came together? Because the you know the attitudes and that whatever was being expressed by Lenny Bruce finds its way into the writings of, say, Bob Dylan or any of them. It, it's there's such an inter uh, interaction with with the uh, I was, with, with with the spoken word and with music. That's why we get such great lyrics. I think in the '60s is the uh, the poetry and the spoken and the the uh, I don't want to say comedy, but the com- the social commentary of Lenny Bruce. Uh, and also hearing, I was telling my students today, we had a class in which we were doing like a jam session with jazz and folk, stu- uh, folk music kind of coming together, because that's really one thing that's interesting, I think, uh, or another thing that's interesting, it's how the, you're right, the, the variety of, uh, of these various expressions, uh, Lenny Bruce, uh, jazz, folk and poetry kind of coming together to make something. And I think what they made was a new art form that's expressed in the music. I think Lenny Bruce actually saw himself as coming out of jazz. Yeah. Yes, he did. He, yes, he did. And so did Kerouac said that he considers himself a jazz, uh, like improvis, impro, you know, improvising. He was improvising jazz when he wrote, you know. Um, Tiny Tim uh, t- taught me a lot about Lenny Bruce. They were very good friends. And uh, and Tiny Tim was often the opening act for Lenny Bruce. I, I hate to say this, but I uh, had some contact with Lenny Bruce, and he wasn't always the 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 best friend you could have had. But that's a whole other matter. <laughs> oh, um, but that I find that to be true with some of the people that I write about in the book, not just Lenny Bruce. I didn't I didn't have that contact with Lenny Bruce ever, but uh, some of the. Some of the characters that are in this book, Music and Revolution, are not are not always the, the best friends you could have. Then the, the name of the book that we are discussing is Music Plus Revolution. Yes. Greenwich Village in the 1960s by my guest Richard Barone, published by Roman and Littlefield. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. How much of an impact did McCarthyism have on the music scene as it was developing in the 50s? Well, as I'm sure you know, it was devastating to to the folk revival movement that it was started picking up steam in the 50s and was reaching uh, a critical mass, you might say, by the Weavers, when the Weavers had a number one record with, with Lead Belly's Goodnight Irene. And it went to number one, and the, and the, the Weavers suddenly were... Uh, how, you know, how can you say they're contenders on the on the entertainment market? You know, they became stars, mm-hmm. and they had uh, several hits. But McCarthyism and the and the uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee put an end to them right away because within within a couple of years, maybe two years, they were blacklisted. Pete Seeger was blacklisted for his activities uh, in at Harvard when he attended. He, uh, Communist Party meetings. He was sentenced to a year in prison, although yes. he did never served. Right, he was indicted and did not have to serve. But, but I mean, he was blacklisted as far as you know. That put a a damper certainly on venues hiring him, and there was maybe an unspoken. Uh, blacklist, may, spoken or unspoken, in which you couldn't perform on national television for 17 years. 
Wasn't Harry Belafonte also on the blacklist? Which is a fascinating story in the book is he somehow was able to get by, even though he was blacklisted, Harry Belafonte was able to have a million selling record. In fact, the first million selling LP was recorded by Harry Belafonte. I think it's the one called Calypso. And that was all after he was blacklisted. He had a number one album that was the first platinum or whatever, gold, whatever, five, uh, a million selling albums of platinum. And, and he was able to have a television special uh, that was great. And he got an Emmy Award. He was the first African-American to win an Emmy Award for his special in, I believe, 1959 or 60. Uh, but he, he was able to get through, but he was blacklisted. Well, I guess if you were connected to the village, you were automatically a suspect. Greenwich Village was yes. home to a safe house used by the the anti-war movement radicals known as the Weather Underground. I know, I know. There was some, you know, the, so, so the, it's a thing that happened, and you were so right about McCarthyism, and that's a general phrase because there's also the, you know, the House and American Activities Committee working in tandem with the, with uh, McCarthy and his. Yeah, how team. many artists were called upon to testify before? Wow, you act? wow. There was a, a long list. I have it in the book, and I believe I, uh, the number escapes me right now, but it was a huge number. It goes on and on and on, and it, of course, it's not just musicians but uh, film directors and actors and so many of the people that we consider you know heroes of our culture were blacklisted so many uh, Josh White is an artist mm-hmm. who when I as I did interviews for the book so many um, cited Josh White as a big influence on their guitar playing and singing and arranging and he was blacklisted and that's one of the reasons we don't he's not a household name now because he was on his way to becoming what we would call a superstar. I mean, he was a big celebrity. He was also, you know, a, a star of the Cafe Society, as was Billie Holiday. Uh, but the blacklist really squashed his career, and so many careers were, were ruined. Some of the key early figures you write about include Alan Lomax, Pete Seeger, Odetta, and the Almanac Singers. <laughs> yes. I've also played the Almanac Singers for my students today. That's it was like I, in a I, way. I'm not from. There are a number of people, and we'll go over some of the other names later. Yeah. Who's? I mean, I've, I know I've known a lot about Alan Lomax, P. Seeger, Odetta, yeah. but the Almanac Singers and a, a number of others that you write about here are uh, were relatively unknown to me. Good, good. You know, when I was talking to when I first started writing this book, and it it didn't just happen as a book. This happened as part of my life because I made an album in 2016, uh, picking songs from this era and doing interpretations of them. And during that time, I started researching the writers, this, like, like Tim Harden and uh, Fred Neal, and 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 of course Bob Dylan. We we that's a story we already know, but some of the lesser known ones. Well, Fred Neal was connected to the Hootenannies. Wasn't he on some? He was. He ran the Cafe Was uh, daytime, lunchtime shows, which was a place where, where certainly Bob Dylan made his debut, and also Tiny Tim and others. So yeah, Fred Neal was like an MC of the shows as well as being a great songwriter. But what I'm what I was going to say was you know as I got more into the story, it just uh, I, into this album I was making, it became I saw that there was a book there. And now I've forgotten your original question, which was very good. So well, I said me? that <laughs> some of the names uh, were less known to me than yes. others, like right, the so Almanac I, singers who, who were big at the time. 
Yes. And so what I was going to say was that I um, I spoke to my friend. I work with Donovan, who was an artist who, mm-hmm. uh, as you must know, came up in the 60s, but really from from England. He's a Scottish uh, artist, but was very keen on the on the Greenwich Village scene. And he's a good friend of mine. So I, I told him I was writing a book and he said, you know, write about the people that no one's heard about. That's where the story is. And uh, I, I found that to be true. Well, it's interesting that so many people came from all over the world, like Donovan, to yeah. the village. In an interview with Jan Wenner, John Lennon said, I should have been born in New York. I should have been born in the village. That's where I yes. belong. <laughs> yes. He said that was his only regret. You know? <laughs> but yeah, I love that quote. And I love I love that Lennon moved here because I'm a big fan of, of John Lennon as well. Um, but yeah, you know, the Almanac singers were Think of them, if you like John Lennon, think of them as like the Plastic Ono Band in which it was a consortium or whatever of musicians getting together and like creating something. It wasn't always a set group of people. It was a different bunch of people each time. And um, the Almanac Singers often had a Lead Belly in it and Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger all at the same time. And Josh White would sit in with them. And Alan Lomax and Alan Lomax's, I believe, sister, would sit in with them. I mean, it was quite an expanded group. And they sang many songs, anti-fascist songs against Hitler or work or labor related songs about workers, about unions. They have a great song, uh, uh, Whose Side Are You On?, which was a union, a pro-union song. Uh, Really a lot of energy in their performances, very different from The Weavers, which was Pete Seeger's next project. Uh, But, uh, you know, uh, Hayes was it Bill Hayes was in the uh, also in the Almanac Singers and the Weavers. There was a sort of a core a continuum, the like continuation of the Almanac Singers that then sort of became the Weavers. But the Almanac Singers were much more loosely organized, and uh, and and had some very pointed political songs. Very pointed. I'm not sure if the Weavers went quite so deep as songs like uh, Round Round Hitler's Grave, which the Almanac singers sang. How uh, integrated uh, intellectually was the area? Did the beat writers interact with the musicians? Oh, yes. Did the politicos interact with the musicians? Yeah, that's what really, that's what's so exciting to me and what what I love and what I, what I love sharing with my students is how that interaction made something made the music catch fire, I think, was the the political activists, the poet, the beat poets right in the neighborhood, Ginsburg living right down the street, you know, William Burroughs. I mean, they were all around. Later in the 60s, when Andy Warhol moved the factory down to Union, Union Square, he was really closer to the music scene too and so many of these musicians that we're that we write about in the book and that we're talking about now you know made their way to the factory to hang out with the art crowd with with that warhol was the center of so there was a lot of interaction with art and poetry and radicalism that made the music what it is and as you pointed out a lot of people came to new york from other places and moved here uh, one of the yeah. most prominent, perhaps, was uh, Robert Zimmerman. <laughs> yes. You know, when he, by the time he arrived, the stage was so fully set for him to come in and have 
just everything was was ready for that for that character that he created which was a little bit based on of course as we know his his admiration for Woody Guthrie and later soon and Dylan later Thomas Dylan Thomas of course and then soon Allen Ginsberg so that you know he had this po- poetic connection and his lyrics just flowered at first his Robert Zimmerman songs were you know, he would take a folk song that already existed that an artist like, as as you know from reading the book, Gene Ritchie or Paul Clayton, who are names that are not as mentioned now, uh, were already performing. He would take them and then rewrite lyrics on sort of on top of the the folk, the original folk lyrics. And that's was was the source of his material at first. But by the time he wrote Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man. By the time we go to like reach like the 1964-65 uh, period, he's he's writing like a poet. I mean, he's he's a poet, and he's he's so inspired, I believe, by the beat, beat poets. But wasn't Dylan also on the cusp between folk and rock and roll? Yes, so very much so. You know, one thing is, and I, I, as a Beatles fan. I didn't want to overemphasize the influence of that group coming up, being on the Ed Sullivan show and reaching all those people and, and, and making such a splash. I didn't want to overemphasize it, but everyone I interviewed in the book did emphasize it as a turning point. And, in, and Dylan was very intrigued when he was on the road. He was doing, a, I believe, a road trip at that, at that time uh, across America for song ideas and just sort of to get out of New York for a minute. He took a road trip and uh, on the car radio, he heard I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, you know, it was he had to stop the car to listen. Like, yes, it's like, pull over. I got to listen to this. And and um, they, all of them had that wherever they were. They seemed like those folk artists had that experience when they heard the Beatles. Like, wow, this this could work with my music. The energy, the, electri- the electrical <laughs> current that was metaphorical as well as physical, as well as actual you know, could could maybe do something with their music. And they they suddenly people started picking up electric guitars instead of acoustic. Mm-hmm. Dylan certainly did it famously at uh, the Newport Folk Festival. But I suspect that the Beatles were also influenced by Bob Dylan. Yes, it, later they were. I, you know, when the Beatles were still in high school, don't forget they had been playing together since age 14. Uh, John and Paul met, I believe, at 14 or 15. And George Harrison was McCartney's friend. So they were in school. They were schoolboys in England. But they were doing Lead Bellies. They were doing Lead Bellies. Uh, a rock, is it called Rock Island? Rock, rock Island. I'm sorry for the name escapes me. Rock Island love. Line. It was a mighty fine line. road. The Rock Island oh, Line is the road to ride. Rock. They were doing that, and they were doing Elizabeth Cotton's uh, freight train mm-hmm. in in their shows as, as high school students. So they were already connected to the music that was inspiring the Greenwich. Some of the Greenwich Village artists. So it made sense that then, you know, I had to find. I found a photo of them opening a box of albums that had been shipped to them from the U.S. And the t- the first record is Freewheeling Bob Dylan. You know, so they were listening to Bob Dylan. We're very excited to meet him when they came to New York for the first time. And I uh, I do I do uh, profile that that meeting in my book. (laughs) Well, I was in England in 1960, 61. Uh And uh, everybody wanted to come to my place to listen to 
jazz and gospel records. Great. Uh, but uh, it was a time where the, when the English were changing. They were, had become suddenly very interested in American music. Uh, and the Beatles seemed to be a natural outgrowth of that, but they sure weren't the only ones. It was already right. happening there. Definitely. I know that. And I, it's, it's a, that was such a great music scene that, in a way, the energy of it parallels, I believe, what was happening in Greenwich Village in a different way, was with the, the, the local scenes around Liverpool with the Mercy Beat bands. And there were, there were so many bands. And Donovan always tells me, too, about the blues, you know, uh, the blues uh, scene in England, how that kind of grew mm -hmm. so strongly and continued through the 60s. Uh, with Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones and his friends, and so there was, and that was all an obsession with American blues. And and uh, you know, when we say rock and roll, that also covers some blues. Like some people consider Chuck Berry, like he's on, he was on on Chess Records with all the other blues artists, with Muddy Waters and and Bo Diddley. Also, I mean, the rock, rock and roll, and blues were very sort of connected. And 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 the British were very. You're right. That's it was a big interest for them. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. There's no place in this world where I'll belong when I'm gone. And I won't know the right from the wrong when I'm gone. You won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone. So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here. Oh, and I A little bit of music from my guest, Richard Barone. I, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with him. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Music Plus Revolution, Greenwich Village in the 1950s. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Richard Barone, whose book is published by Roman and Littlefield. And in case... You don't know uh, as much about him as you should. He is a recording artist, performer, producer, professor, author, <laughs> <laughs> wearing a lot funny. of hats. It's it, funny to hear that, but, you know, it's a lot of work. But, you know, yeah. I you love... a pioneer of the indie rock scene in Hoboken, New Jersey, <laughs> yeah, as the front band of the bongos. I did. I did. You know, the thing about it, it's all one thing for me. It's just it's the music and it's a love of it. And I want to know how it happened. The book happened because I wanted to know how it happened. Well, you oh, also the way, worked with many of the artists who you yes. write about. So were you talking to them, with, to Donovan or Lou Reed or Pete Seeger about uh, this this period? Because it was obviously before you were, well, before you were born and then yeah. when you could barely think. Yes, I did ask them constantly. You know, Lou Reed would always talk to me about the, you know, that he... I, I used to do one of his songs, I still do, called I'll Be Your Mirror, a beautiful song. Mm -hmm. And he always reminds me, it was 1965 when he wrote it. And I, you know, it's it's timeless music that he that he wrote. And uh, I, a lot of 
people, when they speak of the Greenwich Village music scene, leave out Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. But they were right across town on the east side, East Village, you know, what we would call the East Village now, you know, performing and, and doing their thing. Uh, it really came, coming out of the avant-garde film world. Uh, Jonas Mikas, one of my mentors mm-hmm. uh, with the Anthology Film Archives, on which I'm on the board of advisors, and I really support them in every way that I can. Uh, the Velvet Underground started by being the band behind the screen, scoring some of the silent independent films, you know, and uh, that's in the book. And I was able to, to uh, write about them. And certainly Lou Reed was one of my friends and, and uh, heroes. Uh, uh, I just uh, I think a great songwriter that paralleled certainly Bob Dylan in his own way, in a different way. But no. yeah, they, I, I asked them all the time. I used to talk to Pete Seeger. When I started working with Pete, it was he was already uh, approaching 90. And worked through his 90s, I produced his last single, which was called God's Counting on Me, God's Counting on You. And Pete, would, we'd talk every day in the afternoon. He would call me and sometimes give me a little bit of a lesson, explain to me how I got involved with the Communist Party while in college, telling me that it was because they were anti-fascist and they're against Hitler at the time. And he was, of course, he was had the similar sentiments and joined them. Uh, I really was fortunate, and I treasure those relationships. That's how I learned about, uh, began to learn how how this music came to be. And I wanted to write a book. And during the pandemic, where I couldn't do really much of anything else, there were no shows to do. I was able to concentrate on just getting all those thoughts in one place, and that's how this book happened. At the center of Greenwich Village is Washington Square Park. There are also two major private colleges, New York University and and the New School. Um, Hasn't the park played a major role in the story you're telling? Oh, so much. So much so. You know, in in a few different ways. Okay, one is the idea that musicians would go, especially on Sundays, but really throughout the week, and have jam sessions there. I mean, separate, not just one. I mean, every corner of the park had a different genre of uh, bluegrass Mm -hmm. in this corner and, and, you know, protest songs and maybe by the fountain and you know there'd be some jazz in the in a nearby corner and all of this is happening at the same time and different styles of guitar picking and playing and different other instruments and you know each influenced the other because you heard them they were echoing in the park and they it was unavoidable that they would mix it was inevitable that's one thing the idea that all this music was played in the park. But then in 1961, when the city saw saw fit to to not allow music to be played in the park or to require a permit, which was then difficult to uh, achieve, uh, there was the riot, what they called the riot. It was not really a riot. It was a simple protest on which musicians led by Izzy Young, who headed the Folklore Center on McDougal Street at the time uh, and was a folk, uh, not just aficionado, but champion. Uh, you know, the, he led this uh, protest. That which, which protest, has been called the Beatnik Riot. Right, by the so news, it, by the press, by, by, by the by newspapers. Call, yeah, by calling it Beatnik, they were automatically <laughs> demeaning it, weren't they? That's right. April 9th, 1961. Yes, if people use beatnik, I use it as a very positive. In my class, we talk about beatniks, and it's a very, it's a compliment. <laughs> you know, David Amram speaks to my class, and he's a beatnik still at age 91. 
But I consider it a compliment. But they were using beatnik as a pejorative, and they added a few words before it often, like what I can't say on the radio. Uh, but uh, yeah, there was they, the protest was not a right. It was made to be a right by the police who started pass, uh, roughing up the very gentle folk singers like Happy Trom and others. Folk, guys carrying auto harps were being uh, you know beaten down to the ground by police. So it was. It took that that event is captured beautifully in a film that listeners can see on YouTube. Uh, under the title Sunday by Dan, by Dan Drazen, mm-hmm. filmmaker, who was 19 at the time. Uh, you can see it all captured on film. Uh, it's a very, it's a protest that I think helps, that I think helps frame the 60s in the village with the protest to play music in that park and the Stonewall, what also were called riots at the end of the 60s and 69. To me, kind of our bookends to this, era of protest in Greenwich Village. And Robert Moses uh, was a a kind of an enemy of the park, wasn't he? Absolutely. He wanted to put a a six-lane highway right through the middle of Washington Square Park. There was a huge... Why? Why? Because he thought, he said things like, he's quoted as saying things like, you know, that cities exist for traffic or something like that. He wanted the traffic to move. He wanted cars to move. He wanted to get people from here to there, ignoring the fact that people live in the village and perform in the village and, you know, worked in the village. He wanted to put a highway right through the park and it would have destroyed. Well, I wouldn't be sitting here now because it'd be a high, I'd be in the middle of a six lane highway, basically. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yes. They, so the, again, the village had to stand up and protest that. That was a big the save the village protests uh, were part of that. That went on for all kinds of things. The park was under siege by Robert Moses and it took uh, a very diminutive villager, Jane Jacobs, mm-hmm. to stand up to Robert Moses. He criticized her and tried to belittle her in the media in every way he could. It was sexist and it was horrible, but she overcame. Just as Pete Seeger saying, we shall overcome. Well, in this case, we're, we, you know, the village is here, standing here by, because of, uh, in, many, from, uh, in many ways, because of the efforts of Jane, Jane Jacobs. Whose politics changed over the years, by the way, but that's a whole yes. other story. Yes, yes. But Citizen, Citizen Jane, is that the title of the, there's a documentary yeah. about, the, I think it's Citizen, Citizen Jane, I believe is the title. The, the Village has been home to many off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway theaters and major jazz clubs. The Village Gate, uh, the late the lamented Village Gate, but also the Village Vanguard, the Blue Note, and a string of clubs along Bleecker Street, the Bitter End, Cafe Agogo, uh, along with the Village Gate. Um, now, they also spilled over into what we would call the East Village. Yes. Should should we really be integrating the East Village into the story, or is that a yes. separate neighborhood? Well, I really do. Be, I do. I mean, I, I, mean, I the try five to. Spot, for example, places like yeah. that. I mentioned the five spot. I didn't really like focus on artists that played there because I didn't really focus on as much of the jazz artists as many of the jazz artists as you know as, as someone who write, who knows and would write about jazz could do better than I I can. I I focus mostly on the folk and also the way that, as you mentioned earlier how folk and rock merged mm. and that, that's that's like maybe the the meat of my story is how that music 
all merged together. And there was a lot more than just those two genres because so many of the jazz musicians were the accompanists for the folk artists. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they those are those the jazz musicians find their way onto Carolyn Hester's records and and Bob Dylan's records and Odetta's records. They all had Bill Lee on they many had most of them had Bill Lee on bass. Bill Lee was us uh, is mm -hmm. Spike Lee's father, the filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And he was quite a jazz player. And, you know, the, the, the jazz music, and David Amram, who I mention a lot throughout the book and it, in all my conversations about this era, he played piano or French horn uh, for so many of these artists. Um, so, yes, but they were, you know, the five spot was one of the East Village clubs. That was right near uh, St. Mark's Place, right? Like, uh, or, uh, well, it was uh, the five spot actually was at two different locations. Right. It was on the Bowery, and, and then it moved to the corner of St. Mark's and the Bowery. Exactly, exactly. So that came up because the artist, you know, a lot of the story is driven not by me, but what the, what the interviewees told me about. And it was uh, Jesse Colin Young of the Youngbloods who was a jazz, also, they're all jazz, they all love jazz, by the way. Like Eric Anderson told me when he moved to the village, he didn't really go see any other folk artists, he just wanted to go see jazz artists. And that found its way into his music. But Jesse Colin Young lived across the street from the five spot. And uh, so he was, t he told me a lot about that venue. And uh, it's really what they, they told me, what in a way where the story was headed. and. It was a beautiful sort of uh, tapestry that was being woven by their stories. Well, what led to Gertie's Italian restaurant becoming <laughs> Gertie Smoke City? <laughs> I love that story. Talking about I love uh, just, uh, transitions. I love it. And I love that it was right in 1960. It was right as the, really as the story, as my story really begins, because it is, my story really is a 60s story, but I had to, of course, preface it with the 30s, 40s, and 50s, which is crammed into the first chapter and a half or so, you know, because then it really is 1960 and Gertie's Folk City opens in January as a folk venue. Why? Because Izzy Young and his friends thought, well, we need, a, we need a folk venue. There was no designated folk venue that they felt uh, to showcase maybe new folk artists. Uh, and the Italian that, restaurant was willing to make the adjustment? Well, they were willing to have more customers. <laughs> so they had been trying to, they had been bringing like a piano player or a guitar player or whatever to come, you know, during uh, dinner time, just as entertainment. But they, when Izzy Young went to, the owner of, of it was a uh, you know uh, when they went to the, he went to the owner and he said well Porco Mike Porco and he said well you know I, I, you could have folk artists here and he he had to define folk music and I think he he said well Pete Seeger you know Pete you know what Pete Seeger does and Mike then understood it to be oh music where people say something or music where people are trying to get a point across and he goes oh yeah we could do that and they started doing. Uh, folk shows there like on certain nights of the week and it took off it became a very popular thing my guest is richard barone whose uh, book his latest book music plus revolution greenwich village in the 1960s published by roman and littlefield this is wbai new york 99.5 fm and streaming live at wbai.org we've been talking about uh, all sorts of crossovers uh, frank zappa and the mothers of invention were both rock and jazz uh, and also political and yes. just very quickly, I want to tell a story. Uh, I saw them at one of the basement clubs in the early 60s during the Vietnam War. There was a 
soldier in the audience in full uniform. And when the audience came back from the intermission, the soldier was on the stage with the band, bending over a dummy and holding a knife. And during the, the, the song, <laughs> he was told to stab the dummy, and the band shouted, kill, kill. Wow, wow, wow. So wow. it was politics, jazz, rock, a whole a little bit of everything there. Now, I'm, yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned uh, Frank Zappa too. That's a good. That's a good uh, reference. Yeah, you write about many of the famous performers who worked in the Village, uh, and there's no way that we can get to all of them. But I'm going to throw out some of the names, uh, including uh, one that you say was really basically a journalist, Phil Oakes, but also yeah. Peter Paul and Mary, Buffy St. Marie, Richie Havens, The Love and Spoonful, Blues Project, Judy Collins, Janice Ian, Jose Feliciano, The Mamas and the Papas, Eric. Anderson, Joan Baez, Jackson Brown, the mm. Clancy Brothers, and Tommy Makem, Jimi Hendrix, the Kingston Trio, Bette Midler, Liza Minnelli, Joni Mitchell, Maria Muldauer, Laura Nero, Phil Oaks, Tom Paxton, Peter Paul, and Mary, Carly Simon, Simon and Garfunkel, Nina Cerrone, Barbara Streisand, James Taylor, the Velvet Underground, um, and some of the names are less familiar today, like Carolyn Hester, Paul Clayton, and Cynthia Gooding. And we yeah. don't have time to get to all of them, but are there any important stories you'd like to, to talk about with uh, any of them? Well, yeah, here's one thing. Just quickly is that when you mentioned Frank Zappa, it just reminded me of their producer who I guess signed them uh, to the record label was Tom Wilson, mm -hmm. who's a very unheralded hero in this book because he produced and made a lot of these recording artists sound great in the studio, including Simon and Garfunkel, including Bob Dylan. Many, many of these artists were produced, by, and including the Velvet Underground, were all produced by Tom Wilson, the same person, African-American jazz artist mm -hmm. who produced these artists. And I really want, I would love people to come away from the book knowing a bit about these people behind the scenes, including Tom Wilson. And when you mentioned those, all those names, listen, they are all that gave me goosebumps when you li listed all those names, whether they're famous or not. But when you mention names like Paul Clayton, who was a very close friend, best friends with Bob Dylan, these were people that inspired the artists that did become famous in such profound ways. They brought sometimes the material that inspired someone like Bob Dylan to write and to, to it gave him material. Uh, Cynthia, uh, Cynthia Gooding did that. She was on the radio on the BAI and was the mm -hmm. first to interview Bob Dylan on the radio. Uh, there were so many people behind the scenes that made it happen. And I really would like this book to be as much about them as about the superstars. Now, I happen to love all the superstars you mentioned, even the ones I haven't worked with. I love them. I, and I've worked with many of them, including Liza Minnelli. But I mean, I, I love I love it. I got, like I said, goosebumps hearing all that, that roster that you read off. But I would love for people to read this book and to come away knowing the unknown people as well and giving them a bit of credit. Give the drummer some is the phrase that I say on stage with my drummers when I work. But give the give the unheard of people some a little applause, a little a little recognition as well. Now, won't you be uh, doing an event with a number of the people we've mentioned uh, yes. uh, at the Museum of the City of New York on, on uh, the 13th of next month? Yes, I'm so excited. Thank you for bringing that up. On, the, uh, on October 13th, the Museum of the City of New York has asked me if they could launch the book officially. And that was a date they picked. And it's, I, have, I do have Carolyn Hester, who was very, very important in this story, because that's how Bob Dylan got discovered and signed to Columbia Records. He played harmonica for her. Mm 
mm-hmm. and he she'll he'll she'll be there and uh david amram who i mentioned will be there terry roach of the roaches a dear friend suzanne vega who came later but was part of the reun- reigniting of the village in the 80s at folk city uh, and Johnny other Davis. venues uh what yes who's that guy davis yeah, well, Guy Davis unfortunately oh. was not able to attend on this show, oh. but he was on the original idea. Yes, he could. He's not going to be there, but we do have, uh, we we do have an incredible show with, with the names you mentioned, and of course, uh, we have people that are going to be speakers, like uh, like you know people that well, I don't give all the names away. We're going to have some surprise guests, and one of my special guests, who I'm thrilled to to present that night, is Dolores D. Dixon, who was a performer in a group called the New World Singers who were the very first to record Blowin' in the Wind. Hmm. And it, uh, her story about Bob Dylan writing that, starting to write that in her apartment in Harlem after a dinner that her mother provided is one of my favorite stories in the book. And she's going to uh, be at the event and tell us and lead us in that song. So I don't know. At, there's certain things that will happen that night that will never happen again and that could never happen before. So Dylan wasn't the first person to record Blowin' in the Wind? No, he was he was not the first to go. Wow. The New World, the New World Singers did it uh, first. And uh, he's there. Dylan was there in the room directing that we're just sort of uh, acknowledging that they were singing. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure how much he was directing them, but uh, it was uh, the New World Singers, which Happy Trom was in mm. also. And uh, and Dolores Dixon was uh, one of the singers. And and then I think the Chad Mitchell trio recorded it before they did it pretty quickly too. Dylan was performing it, but he hadn't recorded it yet. Then, uh, then Dylan recorded it, and then, of course, Peter Paul and Mary had the hit version. Now we just have a, a couple of minutes left. Uh, what's a, it, the village? Isn't the epicenter anymore? What happened? It was. It's a strange and interesting part of the story. Is the way kind of well in the late sixties, the scene, if we, if we think of it as a scene, kind of floated to California. And I do ask some of the artists, well, why? I asked a producer who produced the Love and Spoonful. Um, I got a great conversation with him, with Eric, Eric Jacobson, and asking him, and you know, he's like, well, we had more space and we had more room. And I said, yeah, but didn't that didn't that change the music? Didn't that change the lyrics? Didn't that change everything? But there was a. It seems like there was a, a movement to California. California, also to England. I think it seemed to spread. In my mind, though, and as I finished as I finished the last chapter of the book, it seems like the village just became everywhere because it's the same. These attitudes that were developed in the village exploded by the time Woodstock happened in 1969. Those were the many of the village performers now performing for 500,000 people, and it became like a national event. And it became it changed the music industry because it became huge. In a way, the village became global. So even though we could say it drifted away, it also became everywhere. You know, and and the on the on the local side of things, part of the reason that the village scene is not so concentrated, partially is because it became so expensive to live here, and so expensive for venues to survive here. So it's a little more diff. It's a bit so more difficult. So they moved to Williamsburg and other places for yes, time, and now yeah. Williamsburg is too expensive. It's really that happens. And, you know, part of it was its own popularity, Hmm. the popularity of the village, you know, I think created by the musicians and artists really then became like we outpriced ourselves. (laughs) That happened in Hoboken with the bongos. Hoboken exploded, too, yet at some point, you know, but the village really did in a big way. It's very expensive to live here now. And it's very expensive for venues to survive. 
You want to give a little plug to your radio show on BAI? Oh, my God. I love I'm so honored to be one of the hosts of Folk Radio on WBAI on Thursdays. It's a Thursday, 10 p.m. to midnight show. And I do it once a month or so with other hosts alternating. And I'm thrilled to do it because I the first station I ever listened to when I came to New York ever was WBAI. I've always loved it. And I'm thrilled to be part of the family. And we're very happy to have you as a member of the family. Thank you. And I've been very pleased to talk to you about the book that you've written. Thank you. Thank you, Leonard. I'm so pleased. You're my first radio interview on this book, and I'm just thrilled that it's you who, you know, the book just came out today. So you really broke the ice and you you put me on the radio, and I really thank you for that. Well, it reminded me of my own youth because I was going to all of these events at the time. Wow, great, great. I love it. We should talk sometime. I'd love to hear more stories. Maybe you should, if you could come to one of these events, I'd love to talk with you, to the audience. Anyway, meanwhile, my great thanks to Richard Barone. His book, Music Plus Revolution, Greenwich Village in the 1960s, is published by Roman and Littlefield. And uh, that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. You should check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show and other shows like the ones we have just been discussing with our guests coming to you uh, here at 99.5 FM. We're here from on weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. and we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Music Plus Revolution, Greenwich Village in the 1960s by Richard Barone. So why not make that call now, 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member for 10, 15, 20, well, however many dollars a month you can afford, what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say thanks to, with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 or more. But any, either way, please, we rely totally on listener donations. We're the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. So help keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when Michael Patrick McDonald will bring us up to date on what's happening in Ireland and the response there to the death of Queen Elizabeth. We'll see you then.